turn your Bibles to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. So I've been listening through the Bible using one of the Bible apps and um, just trying to get scripture in my mind, listen to the word. And uh, 107 was the psalm I had today. And as I was listening to it, I was thinking, this fits perfect. Talking about the pilgrims tonight. So Psalm 107, uh, dealing with the nation of Israel and the deliverance that God provided for the nation of Israel. But we see a lot of similarities. And we're going to do our traditional Thanksgiving Eve uh, reminder of the pilgrims and uh, how they made their way over to the Americas and kind of that traditional thing, all the information I have about the pilgrims comes from two books, um, Peter Marshall's uh, The Light and the Glory. And then another one is, I think it's called Plymouth Plantation. And it has just a lot of the uh, diaries and notes that came from several of the pilgrims that will be mentioning names of them tonight. And so I'm going to mesh the two together. We go through Psalm 107, read portions of it, talk about it, and then bring in the pilgrim's story alongside it. And for the most part, it fits fairly well. And uh, that'll be my plan for our teaching tonight. And so I'd like to ask God to bless our time together. And tonight, Lord, we thank you for those who may be listening right now on WLGS radio, for others, Lord, who might be watching via Facebook, social media, our, our webpage, Lord, the video streaming live there, and for those who are here tonight with us. Lord, tonight we lift up Kathy, who uh, just yesterday going being admitted into the hospital or Monday, but... I pray, Lord, for continued healing in her body. We thank you that there was improvement today and continue, Lord, to touch her life, give her peace and comfort in the midst of this trial. Again, we left up the Spaniacs to you, Lord. They've been dealing with a cold or flu and Connie doing better now, but Frank just kind of lingering a little bit. I pray, Lord, that you would be with them and their health for their daughter, who was also... Uh, sick this week and had to go to the emergency room and she has medicine now to help her. We just pray, Lord, that they'd be healing for Sarah as well. And bless us tonight, Lord, as we look into your word and as we give a, an account of the journey of the pilgrims in the first couple of years as they made their way to America, as you brought them, Lord, to Cape Cod and as they pioneered here in this new country and to learn of their desires and what was on their heart. Today, Lord, we have people who tomorrow will be protesting Thanksgiving and uh, they'll talk about the people that the nation and the, our forefathers robbed of this nation. But Lord, there was different intents. Some, Lord, did come to glean whatever they could out of this land. Others, Lord, came as the pilgrims that they might share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the furthest known reaches of our world. And at that time, Lord, America was one of those places. So we pray to be with us tonight, Lord, as we look this passage. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. So Psalm 107 begins... It's actually the fifth book of the Psalms. Uh, this book is called Deuteronomy, maybe to coincide with the first five books of our Bible. But if you look through your Psalms, you'll come across and you might see the title in your Bible that you have here, but Psalms 107 to 150, book five. And so they are divided into five books. This happens to be the beginning of the fifth book that's found in the book of Psalms. And the psalmist is calling the people of Israel to give thanks to the Lord. And I want to weave into the teaching tonight 
some of the account of the pilgrims and their first Thanksgiving. And uh, actually, we'll take it, yes, into the first, maybe the second Thanksgiving too as well. But we're going to begin looking at verses 1 through 9. And I titled this little section, Redeemed from a Desolate Way. And we begin in verses 1 through 3. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Well, the psalmist begins by calling his people, God's people, the people of Israel, to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his mercy, saying of his mercy that it endures forever. And this word that's translated for mercy in our text here, it's a Hebrew word that can also be translated as loving kindness, and often it is, and it will be in verse 43 of this passage. Vines, his expositor's dictionary on this, he says of this word being used 240 times in the Old Testament, that it has three basic meanings that always interact. So the Hebrew word for mercy or loving kindness, Vine says, have three basic meanings that always kind of interact with each other. And those three meanings, according to Vine, is strength, steadfastness, and love. Strength, steadfastness, and love. And I don't know about you, but like with children relying upon their parents or even parents relying upon their parents if they're still here to have someone that you can depend on. You know that they're strength to you. You know that they're steadfast, but also that they love. And no matter what, you have a dependence on that person. That is God, his loving kindness. And no wonder the redeemed are to share about God's goodness, God's mercy for his strength His steadfastness, his love has redeemed us from the enemy, gathered us from the four corners of the earth. Here in this passage, verse 3, they came from the east, the west, the north, and the south. And here, this passage may very well have been written after the time of Babylon when the Lord was bringing them back into the land itself, gathering them from the four corners of the earth. Isaiah would prophesy, Prophesy about this as well. Isaiah 43, 5 and 6 saying, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east. I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And I have prayed Isaiah 43, 5 and 6 often for this church asking the Lord from the east to the west to the north to the south to bring those that God would have worship in this place. So the pilgrims, originally known as the separatists, they're from England, and they had separated themselves out of the Church of England because they had saw the hypocrisy of the Church of England. Their doctrines, their practices were no longer scriptural, And they were determined to structure a church that solely relied upon the word of God. Imagine that, a church that based its foundational principles on God's word. That's what the separatists wanted to do. But it was more than just an attack against the Church of England, but also against the state as well, because the Church of England controlled the state at that time. They had a controlling hand over the king and queen and over many of the people. The church's bishops were usurping their authority far beyond the bounds of Scripture, causing worshipers to go through the motion of faith without truly knowing what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So back to our text, Psalm 107, verses 4 through 7. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. 
Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Now this may refer back to Israel's 40 year in the wilderness, but more than likely because he's gathering them from the east to the west, north and south, that it refers to their exile by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians and the Lord bringing them back. Their wilderness wanderings brought them along the desolate way And they were without city, without food, without water, causing their souls to faint within them and nearly losing hope. We're going through the first five books of the Old Testament right now. We're in the book of Numbers. And we find quite often Israel in this place where they're losing hope, where they're crying out that they'd rather be in bondage in Egypt than in the wilderness. And at this point, we're only one year, two months in their journey. What they don't know is that they have 38 years, 10 months to go roaming around that wilderness. But that's their own fault, and that's a different story for another night. Often they came to that place of nearly losing hope. And at that point, they did a wise thing. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and the Lord delivered them out of their distresses. And there's a repeated phrase here in verse Six, they cried out to the Lord in their troubles and he delivered them out of their distresses. It's repeated in verse 13, 19, and 28. The psalmist wants his readers to know that they can cry out to God at any time. This is because God will not only deliver us out of our distresses, but also lead us by the right way, bring us into that city for habitation. And only Jesus today is the one who delivers us the one who shows us the right way, the one who will bring us to that city, according to Hebrews 11.10, the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So back to the separatists. After King James I became king over England, he gave the bishops of the Church of England free hand to do whatever they wanted to against the separatists. And so they began by forcing them to pay assessments to the church. And if they refused, they were thrown into prison on false charges. This forced the separatists to go underground and eventually led them to find a solemn in Holland. And though they found relief from persecution in Holland as immigrants, they were forced to work long hours, exhausting hours, And it merely allowed them to exist in the land. One of the separatists, we know him, the pilgrim William Bradford, would later reflect upon this time in Holland. This is what he wrote. Our life, though no one complained of it, was so hard that almost no others were coming from England to join them. Even after the king's edict of 1618, which decreed that all Puritans, later a later name given to the separatists, not willing to conform to the ecclesiastical authority, has to leave the country. Our life was aging us prematurely. Everyone old enough to hold a job worked 12 to 15 hours a day and was so debilitating us that should the time come when we would move again, we might not be physically able to do so. Our children were also being wore down. Many were being drawn away by the lures of the world around them. We had cherished a great hope, an inward zeal of the least, at least part playing, if only as a stepping stone for others in carrying forth the light of Christ to the remote parts of the world. They were getting worn down and they were worried about their children. And sometimes in this life, we feel like we're getting worn down. And I tell you right now, I am worried about our next generation and the kids that's coming up after us because I don't know what kind of troubles they had back in Holland in the uh, late 16 or early 1600s, but I doubt if they would compare to the days that we live in today where our children are being drawn away, lured by the world. Back in our psalm, 
in 107, 8 and 9, it says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul. He fills the hungry soul with goodness. So in these verses, the psalmist gives us four reasons why we should give thanks to the Lord. First of all, for his goodness. Second, for his wonderful works. Third, he satisfies the longing soul. And fourth, he fills the hungry soul with goodness. God is good. God does wonderful works. He satisfies our soul. He fills the hungry soul with goodness. And most people today, whether they attend church or not, seem to be seeking after their own pleasures. Still, within our churches, there are those who hunger and thirst for God. They desire to walk before the Lord in righteousness, but it's only through Jesus that we can obtain His righteousness, causing us to give thanks for God's goodness, His wonderful works, for only Jesus can truly satisfy our longing souls and fill our hungry souls with his goodness. Psalm 36, 8 says, They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the rivers of your pleasures. Well, while they were in Holland, they began to look to America. And the distress that they had in Holland combined with the hope of carrying forth the gospel of Jesus Christ caused the separatists to look to America for freedom. And yet their pastor, John Robinson, not Robson, to our Robson family out here, Robinson, he prayed for revelation from the Lord. And God's purpose soon became clear. For he perceived, and I'm reading from the words that he wrote, God was calling them to a new Jerusalem to build a new temple with themselves as the stones. Just as the people of God of old were called from Babylon to go rebuild the Lord's temple, so are the people of God now to go out of Babylon spiritual to Jerusalem and to build themselves as lively stones into a spiritual house or temple for the Lord to dwell in. And so in this first section in verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 107, we find today in the church, only Jesus can take us from the distresses of this world and set us free. But also we find that they were redeemed from the shadow of death, Psalm 107, 10 through 22, looking at verses 10 through 12. Those who sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor, and they fell down, and there was none to help. So for Israel, they sat in darkness, in the shadow of death. They were bound in affliction and irons because they had rebelled against the word of the Lord. That's why this fits perfectly with the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity for the ten tribes to the north. It was because of their disobedience that God allowed Israel to go into captivity. Their distress, their sorrows, they were their own, their own cause of them. Their sins had led them into bondage where God brought down their hearts with labor. Psalm 106:43. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled against, rebelled in their counsel, and were brought low for their iniquity. God showed a lot of grace to Israel of the Old Testament, but eventually judgment came. For the separatists, desiring to leave Holland and get to the Americas, they sold all the possessions that they had, but they didn't have enough. Obviously, they kept the basic necessities that they thought they would need in America to start a new colony there, but they didn't have enough to get them to America. And this caused them to secure an um, agreement with Thomas Weston for the funds for the trip. They actually indentured themselves for a period of seven years, but it actually took them 20 years to pay off the debt. In verses 13 through 16, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. 
He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, broke the chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. So Israel in their distress, crying out to the Lord. And if this psalm is post-Babylon, there's no author listed for us here. If it is post-Babylon, we understand in the prophet Daniel, by his reading the prophet Jeremiah, he understood that they were to be in captivity for 70 years. And as the 70 years was coming to fulfillment, Daniel began to pray. We can read about this in Daniel 7, Daniel 9. He was seeking the Lord, basically saying, what's next, Lord? We've done our time. It's time to deliver us. And so he was seeking the Lord based upon the word of the Lord. And that's such a good way to come into prayer, not to remind God of his promises, but to really remind us of the promises made by God that we would stand by faith in the word of God. So after Israel cried out, they discovered that it was God alone who could save them. And likewise, our hope is in Jesus Christ, who is able to bring us out of the darkness, the shadows of death, because he has broken the chains of bondage and death. Peter proclaimed in Acts 2.24 concerning Jesus, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So I, I switched up the separatist name here from here on out because now they're getting on the ship. They're getting ready to go to the Americas. Now we can call them the pilgrims. That first group that initially set forth on the maiden voyage made up about a third of their congregation. Pastor Robinson, he wanted to go with the first group, but because two-thirds of the church, his congregation remained in Holland, he thought it best to stay with the majority of the congregation. So like Moses, Pastor Robinson never stepped foot on the land of promise, never came as he would die before he had an opportunity to come to America. So William Brewster was then appointed to be the interim pastor for the pilgrims as they were going to America. But his first duty was to read a letter from Pastor Robinson. And just a brief snippet of that letter. He wrote to his congregation, that third of his congregation that was going to America. We are daily to review we are daily to renew our repentance with our God, especially for our sins unknown and generally for our unknown trans trespasses. For sin being taken away by earnest repentance and the pardon thereof from the Lord, great shall be a man's security and peace in all danger, sweet his comfort in all distresses. When we have that walking relationship, that fellowship with God, Great will be a man's security. You know, when I read these words this morning, it brought me right back to when I was 21, 22 years old, maybe 23. But when I struggled with my own salvation, whether I was found secure in Christ or not, in hindsight, I look back at that period, I was in the Lord's hand. And I don't doubt that now, but then... I wasn't sure, but there was one blessed Sunday morning where the Lord gave me that, that security, and I've never doubted it since. So great is a man's security, a woman's security, peace in all danger. That doesn't even make sense, does it? Peace in danger? Well, when you have Christ, it can make sense. Our psalmist continues in verses 17 through 22 saying, Fools, because of their transgressions, because of all their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they, were, they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. 
He sent his word and healed them. He delivered them from their destruction. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Israel had foolishly transgressed God's law and committed iniquities against the Lord and brought them to the point of death. And at that place, I don't know how, why it is for us, and this is often the case, that we have to get really low before we look up and turn and look to God for help. It happens over and over again, and perhaps it's happened to you as well. But when they came to that point of death, they cried out to the Lord. He responded to them by saving them in three distinct ways. First, he sent them his word. We are blessed to have God's word with us tonight. Second, he healed them. And third, he delivered them. And I think that there is healing power in the word of God and deliverance that comes through the word of God, how important the word of God is to us to this day. God's deliverance caused the psalmist to call for all men to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, his wonderful works, that they would sacrifices, sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. That's somewhat what tomorrow should be for us in our homes with our family members, our friends that we give thanks and declare the works of the Lord. Well, back to the pilgrims. They'd set out originally with 120 on this journey. They originally had two ships. One was called the Speedwell and the other one, as we know, the Mayflower. And they set out on the journey twice and... uh, the speedwell started taking water both times. They brought her back to dock. They checked all of her seams. Um, she seemed sound to go to the sea. And so they launched out again and she began to leak again. So after two times trying, they came back. And I'm pulling this from memory. I think they tried twice. And the theory now, some believe that the speedwell was fine. It would go on to work in the shipping industry for years. But they believe that the um, sailors were f- forcing the, the stressing the ship itself and the sails in such a way that they were causing it to leak because they didn't want to go. So they were the ones causing the problem. The ship was not put out of commission once the pilgrims got off the ship. But it caused them to make the decision to downsize from 120 to 102 and to put them into the Mayflower, their other vessel. William Bradford saw this downsizing as a work of God. He recorded, and thus, like Gideon's army, this number was divided as if the Lord, by this work of his providence, thought these few too many for the work that he had to do. So as we go on in verses 23 through 32, back in our psalm, we find that the redeemed, God redeemed Israel from great distresses. And again, fits perfectly with the pilgrims because this next section, he talks about being at sea. And we're going to look at that in a moment. So verses 23 through 27, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on the great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind. He lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount to the heavens and they go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro, stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits end. So the sailors and those who travel on the sea, those who do business on the sea, they get to see the wonders, the works of the Lord there in the deep. The storm lifts the ship up, plunges it back down. They reel to and fro. They stagger like drunken men. 
And the pilgrims, in their journey, well, they departed on the Mayflower on September 6, 1620. Again, 102 pilgrims were crammed into the ship, but below deck in an area the size of a volleyball court. So 102 people. We have a volleyball court at the top of the hill here on the property. And what made matters worse, the seas became so stormy that the sailors made them stay below deck throughout their 66-day journey. But God's providence saw even in this, because the Mayflower had been a vessel that was actually a merchant ship for wine. And they theorize now that her beams were so wine-soaked that it was a disinfectant, that they were able to be in that close area and to keep from spreading disease. But one night, one of the pilgrims, his name was John Howland, well, he attempted, hey, 102 people, teenagers, can you imagine the smell that happened down there? Well, he attempted to escape that stench of their quarters. He went topside. He climbed into a nightmare. There were huge, boiling, green and grave waves that were lifting and tossing the Mayflower. And he saw the dark clouds rolling above, the winds shrieking through the rigging, causing him to shake with fear. And then suddenly the ship dropped out from beneath him and he found himself falling. And he hit the ocean like being slammed between two blocks of ice. His last conscious act was to reach blindly out and by God's grace, the ship was healed so far over that one of its lines was trailing in the water and his hand grabbed that line. By the time they pulled him back, they pulled in his blue body. And though he was sick for several days, he never again stuck his head above deck until he was invited to do so. Another providential event, I remember learning about this when I was in grade school. I doubt if there's too many schools teaching about this today. But Bradford wrote, and this is from his diary, after they had enjoyed fair winds and weather for a season, they were encountered many times with crosswinds and met with fierce storms with which the ship was shroudly shaken and her beams works were made very leaky and one of the main beams on the midship was cracked and bowed which put them in some fear that the ship would not be able to perform the voyage. But examining all options, the master and others affirmed that they knew the ship to be strong and firm under water. And for they had buckled, and for the buckled main beam, there was a great iron screw that the passengers brought out of Holland, which would raise up the beam into its place, and which being done, he would make it sufficient so they committed themselves to the will of God and resolved to proceed. Verses 28 through 32. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of their elders. When a storm brings them to their wits' ends, there, with nothing more that they could do, they cry out to God, who responds by calming the storm and the waves and bringing them to their desired haven. Remember, it was the Lord Jesus Christ when his disciples and the fishermen there on the Sea of Galilee were crying out in distress. And they woke Jesus up. And Jesus standing said, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. It's only God who can bring a great calm over the seas, over a lake, over our hearts. And once again, the psalmist calls men to give thanks to the Lord for the Lord's goodness, for his wonderful works. He additionally calls for them to exalt the Lord in the congregation of the people to praise him in the assembly of the elders. That's why it's so important 
for us to come together, to worship together, to encourage one another as the body of Christ. For the pilgrims, the Lord did guide them to a safe haven. The bad weather was not the only thing that they endured during those days, though. For every hidden sin came to surface. Anger, self-pity, bitterness, jealousy, despair. They had to deal with it all. But by God's grace, they were dealt with and they were knit together as one. Arriving further north than they originally planned, the captain tried to sail south. They originally had indentured themselves to go to the Virginia Territory. And if they were going down to Jamestown, Jamestown was a nightmare. And uh, most of the people who originally came in through Jamestown, by the way, John Pinnell was one of those persons, not this one, but one of my ancestors came through Jamestown. But they had a more than 50% death rate at Jamestown. It was a mess there. So they tried to go down, but the ship couldn't fight the winds. And so it brought them, they determined at this point that maybe God had something else in mind for them. So they ended up in the Hudson and the decision was made to make for the northern tip of Cape or Providence Town today. And the Mayflower dropped anchor there in a natural harbor on November 11th in 1620. But he also, they were redeemed from affliction and sorrows, verses 33 through 43. And that takes us through the end of Psalm 107. So 33 through 34 says, And he turned rivers into the wilderness and water springs into dry dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwelt in it. So the chapter closes by God recounting the work of the judgments and mercy. God's judgment was seen through his turning rivers into water springs, into a dry wilderness, causing their land to turn from fruitfulness to barrenness. And the pilgrims originally would struggle in that first year. Remember, they arrived November 11th. They arrived right at the, which possibly would be one of the worst times to show up in winter um, to start a new settlement. I would think if I was planning the journey, I would have said, how about let's go in the spring? Let's go when the weather's good and we can get things set up. But they, they arrived in November. Since it was not the Virginia Territory, they drafted a document to cre- create their own civil government. This document may have marked one of the first times in recorded history that free and equal men had voluntarily covenanted together. The Mayflower Compact is what it's called. And it became a prelude to our own Declaration of Independence. Here's a portion of that compact. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord, King James, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these present solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for a better ordering and preserving and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. So the landing party made its way ashore. And among the things that they found on that first time in the new land was a catch of corn that was buried by the Indians. They brought that back to the ship. And on that night, it was the first time they had that Indian corn, which be a staple that would save their lives. On December 6th, a landing party intending to circumnavigate the Bay of Cape Cod found it cold and frozen. And so on that afternoon, they saw their first Indians who ran away before they could hail them. And after prayers and breakfast on the following day, they all of a sudden heard a great and strange cry, which they knew to be the same voices that they had heard in the night 
And one of their companions came running and crying, Indians, Indians. And soon arrows came flying among them. Two muskets were fired. Two more men stood ready, but were commanded not to shoot until they could take full aim. And the cries of the Indians were dreadful. Later on, William Bradford, actually a journal that was written by Bradford and Winslow together, they said, yet by the especial providence of God, none of their arrows hit us or hurt us, though many came close by us and on every side of us. Some coats which were hung up in our barracks were shot through and through. So after we had given God thanks for our deliverance, we went out on our journey and called this place the first encounter. Back to our text, verses 35 through 38. He turns the wilderness into a pool of waters, dry lands into water springs. He makes the hungry dwell that they may establish a city for a dwelling place and sows field and plants vineyard so that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them, multiplies them greatly and does not let their cattle decrease. So afterward, God, who had turned uh, water into dry places and fruitful lands into barren land, now for Israel, he takes the wilderness and the dry places, makes them pools of water, water springs. He brings the hungry there to dwell. The people are able to establish a city to sow and to plant vineyards, to yield fruitful harvests. And they are blessed and their children are blessed as well. So the pilgrims, they found a dwelling place on the following Monday. So we're in the month of December still. They found a small island that had a perfect natural harbor for the Mayflower. Across from the island on the mainland, they found rich, fertile soil that rose up from the water's edge, making it a perfect place for a settlement. It had four spring-fed creeks close by that had the sweetest water that they had ever tasted. And on the hill, there was a good 20 acres of ground that had been cleared and ready to plant. And for some unknown reason, the land had been abandoned for many years. When they returned to the Mayflower to tell of their fine, William Bradford learned that his wife, Dorothy, had gone overboard and had drowned. But from this great tragedy rose a man who had a singleness of purpose he would plant a colony for God's glory and would go on to become the governor of Plymouth to be reelected annually for the next 36 years, except for five of those years where he made somebody else. I, I thought today as I was reading that, that in five years, a lot of trouble can come upon a people. It can happen to us in just two years, I mean four years. We elect new leadership. Bradford probably says, yeah, I need to come back. This is a mess. 39 through 40. When they are diminished and brought low through their oppression, affliction, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes, causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. As time passes, the people, they will rise up in pride. But once again, God will diminish. He will humble them. He knows how to put down the mighty. He knows how to exalt the lowly. So that first winter for our pilgrims, they had asked Captain Jones to stay on through the winter, which he agreed to do so. Even with the ship at hand, that first winter would cost them 47 lives, almost half their original company. During that first winter, they lost 13 of 18 wives, having only three families that remained unbroken. The children fared better than they all did, of the seven daughters, none died. Only three boys of the original 13 died, leaving the pilgrims a very young colony. During the first winter, they managed to build houses consisting usually of two rooms with a central fireplace and a loft overhead for sleeping. They also built a block house, a place with a flat roof that could be easily defended, but also became their church. And inside that blockhouse, that church for them. They had hewn out log benches where the men would sit on the left and the women on the right, and William Brewster would preach and teach both powerfully, again quoting from them, 
both powerfully and profitably to the great contentment of the hearers and the comfort, comfortable edification. Yea, they were brought to God by his ministry. Bradford said that God used Brewster's preaching as an instrument to bring sweet repentance to their hearts for the sins they might have forgotten about. By mid-March in 1621, they heard the cry, Indian coming, this time only singular. The Indian who came was Samoset. His name actually means he who walks over much. And he came and stood before them, and in his deep voice he, he said, Welcome! And they were amazed. And then he replied and asked, now they said, welcome. And he replied to them and asked, do you got any beer? They didn't. But they were able to treat him to some brandy, some biscuits, butter, cheese, pudding, and roast duck. And they were amazed that Samoset had an appetite for English flu, English food and had a flawless uh, language that he could speak to them in English. But he loved to travel, and he would often catch rides up and down the coast with fishing captains over the years. Samoset told them about the Indians who had lived there, a large, hostile tribe who had killed every white man who had landed on their shore. Then, about four years before the pilgrims arrived, a mysterious plague had killed every man, woman, and child. Therefore, all the tribes stayed away from that area. Because of this, they saw it as a mysterious plague. So Samoset introduced the pilgrims to their nearest neighbors, the Wampagos. They had 60 warriors and the chief, Massasoits. And they spent at least eight months, Samoset spending at least eight months with them. And they sent gifts back. So Samoset staying with Massasoit and his warriors, they sent gifts back to Massasoit through Samoset, and they brought him a gift of a knife, bracelet, and rings. And Samoset returned the following Thursday. He had with them the last of that dreadful tribe who the whole tribe had died off whose land they were now on, his name was Squanto. He had been taken captive in 1605 and brought to England. And while he was in England, uh, he spent nine years, came back in 1614 to be recaptured, sold as a slave, and then rescued back in England again by friars. He was introduced to the Christian faith, found his way back to America and stepped ashore only six months before the pilgrims. And to his shock, he found that every man, woman, and child of his tribe were dead. All that remained was skulls and bones, and so he wandered about in despair. And so Massasoit took pity on him, and Squanto found purpose living with the English families, with the pilgrims. He taught them so many things about the land that they were on, how to trap, how to plant, even how to sell the skins that they would trap. He stayed with the pilgrims until his death uh, because of Indian fever, which they called it, in 1622. And when he died, he prayed and begged the governor to pray for him that he might go to the Englishman's God. His death was a great loss to the pilgrims. In the final verses of our chapter 41 through 43, and he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, makes their family like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice, and all iniquity stops its mouth. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. God sets the poor on high, makes their family like a flock, causes the righteous to rejoice because they understand the loving kindness of God. The first Thanksgiving, the pilgrims continued to work on their new dwellings. Ten men went north with Squanto to trade, and the trip was a successful trip. And when the harvest came in the fall, they had more than enough to get them through the second winter. 
So Governor Bradford declared a day of public thanksgiving to be held in October, and their gratitude was expressed toward Squanto, the Wampangos, and toward God. Massasoit was invited to come, and he showed up early, actually showed up a day early with 90 Indians. He also brought their numbers to around 140 then. The pilgrims realized that such feasting would cut heavily into their winter supplies, but they learned to trust in God. Also helped that Massasoit came with his braves, having five dressed deer and many uh, fat turkeys. Only four women had remained that first winter, so everyone helped prepare the feast. The Indians taught the women how to make hoe cakes, tasty pudding out of cornmeal, maple syrup. They also shared that Indian delicacy that my son-in-law loves to make every week, popcorn. Is that true? I think it is. Edward Winslow wrote about this first Thanksgiving. I'm quoting his journal. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men a-fouling that so we might have a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help besides served the company almost a week, at which time amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming among us, among the rest of their great king Massasoit, with some 90 men for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, and they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon our captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are far from wants that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. So obviously writing back to the separatists that they left in Holland. So one of the climaxes of the feast was William Brewster's prayer. They had so much to be thankful for. God had provided for all their needs, even when they were weak in faith. They had formed friendships with the Indians that would last for some for a lifetime. And God had given them a place in the new land where they could grow and multiply. In November, then, 35 more members of their group arrived from England. They came without any provisions, though, which caused the pilgrims to have to cut back on their rations by half. Before the winter was over, God miraculously caused them to survive with a daily ration of five kernels of corn apiece. They had no choice but to trust God. And not one of them died of starvation that winter. A few years later, in April of 1623, they planted a corn harvest and allowed additional lots to be planted. So that original Mayflower compact, when they originally came in, um, it was more of a socialist outfit. Everybody worked for the a plantation base. They called it the plantation. So everybody worked. Everything went into that place. But here by 1623, they discovered that it wasn't working that way because some people just don't want to work as hard as other people. So that's what happened in April of 1623. They said additional plots could be planted for everyone's personal benefit. You can work for your own goods. We're still going to support everybody but you can take a portion of for your own goods. And that is the system of government that we've had for so long that they're trying to, once again, strip away from us. But soon after planning, there was a dry spell. Not even the oldest of the enemies, Indians, not enemies, not even the oldest of the Indians could remember a dry spell like this. Eventually, the pilgrims perceived that God's hand had turned against them. And so they called a day of humiliation and fasting. And Winslow tells of this day, But, oh, the mercy of our God, who is ready to hear as we were ready to ask. For in the morning, 
When we assembled together, the heavens were as clear and the drought as likely to continue as ever was. Yet our exercise continued some eight or nine hours. Before our departure, the weather was overcast. The clouds gathered on all sides, and on the next morning distilled such a soft, sweet, and moderate shower of rain that continued to some 14 days, and mixed with such seasonable weather as it is hard to say whether our withered corn or our drooping affections were most quickened and revived. Such was the bounty and goodness of our God. Bradford further commented about the rage that came without either wind or thunder or any violence, and by degrees in such great abundance that the earth was well watered and soaked. It had such a profound effect upon the Indians, for they had never experienced such a day as resulted from the pilgrims' day of humiliation and fasting. It was during the next Thanksgiving when they gathered the pilgrims along with 120 braves this time with venison and turkey and many tasty treats. At that next Thanksgiving, on the plate was five kernels of corn to remind each of them of the hard times that the Lord had brought them through. And it is only Jesus who can take us from affliction and sorrow into his great loving kindness. Four times in Psalm 107, the psalmist calls to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works. Sadly, we have many today who refuse to give thanks to God. They call it Turkey Day now. It's a day of football. It's a day of families perhaps getting together. But will there be thanksgiving in those homes? Well, I know there will be in my home. And I hope there will be in yours as well. Sadly, many refuse to give thanks to God today. But the wise who observe all these things understand the loving kindness of our Savior Jesus. He is the one who can quicken our souls and bring life to spirits that are in despair. And Father, we give you praise. To look at a psalm that was written for the nation of Israel that seems to me to so fit very well with some of the accounts of the pilgrims as they first made their way here to America. Lord, in our country today, many are wanting to forget this day. In fact, Christmas decorations have already been up. It's like we skip Thanksgiving. But Lord, let it not be so with us. We give thanks to you tonight, Lord, for you have brought us through thus this far. Here we are. And it's by your grace that we stand or sit here tonight. And Father, we pray tomorrow that you would bless our homes as we gather into homes with family, with friends, and help us, Lord, to be a little bit of the light that you would have us to be to those who don't know you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. Well, Sunday we come together and we have uh, the last three parables that are found in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to continue looking at that this coming Sunday. Then the following weekend is a big weekend for us. That's Saturday, December 3rd. It's hard to believe that it's here already. But um, we have our 30th anniversary here at the church, beginning in the evening at 5. We're going to have dinner at 5.30 and a service at 7 o'clock. Pastor Phil Ballmeyer of Calvary Chapel, Elk Grove, and Pastor Tony Dupree from Sure Foundation Church will be with us here that night. And then, of course, that Sunday morning, we continue our celebration. So 30 years of ministry, we're just... Uh, little more than a week away from that time of celebrating 30 years of the Lord. He brought us this far. So we have a lot to be thankful for in our families, for this church, for one another. And Father, we thank you for this night. We pray, Lord, as we go from this place, that you would bless us and that you would keep us and that your grace would shine upon us. 
and that we would know your peace. Even in the midst of trials, Lord, that we would know your peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding to guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.